Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, November 24th. Today we have an interview with Lawrence Hamtill. Not a traditional interview. We usually talk growth names, but not with Lawrence. We had some uh, less sexy businesses, but it was a good discussion. And they're all, I mean, these are industries that have absolutely crushed the market. You're talking defense, uh, tobacco a little bit, waste management. Not something people get excited about, but I mean, it's all about the returns. And these right. type of businesses have a phenomenal track record, strong moats. Well, you know, the, almost the ultimate competitive advantages. Yeah. And before we get to that, we have a word from our partners, which is Seven Investing. Oh, and I forgot to tell you, Brett, that we got a whole bunch of new signups. Perfect. Yeah. That's actually that's actually fantastic. You guys are helping yourselves by partnering with, you know, that's these right. great investors. You're helping us a bit. And I mean, if you look at it, you can get, you know, our code CCM to get $10 off uh, your first month at 7investing. Try it out. I mean, Simon just tweeted today that he's the lead advisor, you know, that he's the guy that started up with the other right. guys there. They, his, his recommendation in November actually already went up 100%. Now, that's, that's a bit quick, but, I mean, it just shows that they're really smart over there. Yeah, and, I mean, I don't, I'm not usually a fan of peer pressure, but if everyone else is doing it, it's probably best that you – as a listener, if you <laughs> yeah, haven't yeah. done it, that you do it as well. Perfect, so it's yeah. code CCM. Um, and then we have our stories for the week before the interview. So what are you talking about? Yeah, I'm talking about uh, online marketplace Wish. They went public. I know you're going to talk about Airbnb. That's something we like a little bit more. Yeah. This is kind of something of an example of maybe an S1 that there's a couple red flags, an IPO that you may want to avoid. Okay. And yeah, so I guess I have the Airbnb S1 as well. And then we have current state of FinTwit hot water, buy, sell, hold, and our anecdotal evidence. Let's go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests not formal advice or a recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. I'm talking Airbnb. So they filed their S1 this week. And just generally, uh, it was kind of what we already expected. This is one of those companies that uh, even though not all the numbers were out there, it's talked about a lot. So people kind of knew how the business was doing. Yeah, uh, generally, any big surprises from you or everything we kind of expected, right? Um. Yeah, I mean, 2019 and 2020 were negatively affected by COVID. Yeah. And so you saw that in the numbers, but leading up to it, it looked like a really good business. I'll get into the, some of the numbers then. Revenue for the last nine months was $2.5 billion, down 32% from the year prior. Um, a lot of that is linked to COVID, obviously. Um, the years prior to COVID, revenue was growing at 42% and then 31%. Uh, in 2018, they were almost break even on a net income basis, but obviously, uh, 2019, they fell towards the end. They were losing a lot of money because of all the uh, bookings that got canceled. Yeah. Um, and then gross bookings for the month of September, so the latest month uh, before they filed the S1, was down 23% year over year. So they're still not out of the turmoil yet. I mean, they're still down from the business they once were, but it has since recovered a little bit. Um, the gross daily rate, which is basically the average daily price being paid for a place, uh, actually went up 18% year over year to $127. Uh, as far as balance sheet goes, they had $4.5 billion in cash and cash equivalents, $3 billion in working capital, uh, $3.2 billion in some 
convertible preferred stock. And they did some of that this March, correct? They had a high rate on that. They didn't really get a good deal, but they had to get to liquidity just because they were worried about the business, you know. In March and April was down right. like 50, 60 percent. And they, uh, some of the other numbers that they had, they have more than four million hosts on the platform. They have more than seventy percent gross margins. Nights and experiences booked was three hundred twenty nine million for twenty nineteen. That's an impressive number. Uh, they actually generated five hundred million in free cash flow in twenty eighteen. So twenty eighteen was sort of the last year you got to see what their business really looks like when it's thriving. And it was a good. It was a good-looking business, growing revenues, 40%, free cash flow, margins, uh, I'm guessing they somewhere between 20%, somewhere in there, uh, gross margins above 70%. It was a good business at that time. Uh, the br- CEO, Brian Chesky, owns 15% of the company. Uh, it's a lot of, still a lot of inside ownership there. Just generally, what did you think of the numbers? Mm, I, no surprises, positive or negative. I guess one uh, thing I was looking for is the longer term stays, and those have grown quite a bit um, relative to the other ones, which I think people may expect and are looking for just because of the work from home trend. Uh, there's going to be people with more availability to you know, be those digital nomads, as people say, where you know move month to month or stay a few months in one spot. So I did like that longer term stay number. Um, you know, the balance sheet is okay. You know, even pre IPO, I think they're going to want to bulk that up though, because once everything recovers, they're going to want to reinvest as travel. You know, hopefully accelerates coming out of the vaccine. But yeah, I mean, I guess another thing I thought about was you know, 2018 they generated that free cash flow, but in 2019 they also talked about how they were going to invest in a lot of new businesses. I think they were going to have a premium membership. They were going to launch some sort of travel partnerships uh, with people with like a credit card and things like that. And they were also doing the experiences. Um, they were doing a business travel initiative. There was like six to 12 things that got ramped back. So the reason that 2019 didn't have the peak free cash flow for them is that they invested heavily into some a ton of new initiatives. And then in 2020, obviously, it was COVID. And they weren't going to be cash flow positive anyways, but they've had to pull those back. And hopefully in 2021, 2022, they, start, they reinvest in those new um, things that can hopefully, you know, I mean, maybe increase margins or just increase the take rate they get on this business. Do you think COVID will end up being a net positive for them uh, Mm. in the long run? I don't know. I think it it, did help them shed a lot of bloat. They ended up firing a lot of people, which I know sucks. But at the same time, if they figure out, wow, we can run this business with 75% of the workforce we were, and we can maybe be a little more frugal in the... I think sometimes it helps to get like a slap in the face when you're a VC-ran company and you have funding at will. Um, Yeah, they they haven't had an easy ride, yeah. And then you say, well, you know, when shit hits the fan, uh, it's not as easy. So I think this kind of keeps them in check. I don't know. Maybe I'm just thinking of of it as like a CEO. Yeah, I guess competitively there's... So versus booking.com or things like that, Expedia, uh, they maybe didn't get any competitive advantages over this. They're probably in the same boat, you know, lower capital spend uh, just because they're the platform, but they're going to have the demand, you know, give and take just with what the economy is doing. But, you know, hotels, a lot of places with hard assets, uh, they may have an advantage over just because that cash um, there's just a lot more liabilities with those type of businesses. Although, you know, there's also the thinking that, you know, hotels can standardize things. They can make them cleaner from COVID. Um, I don't know. It, I used to like Airbnb's business a lot. There have been some current concerns brought up with me just because of the, the review system seems to be something that's uh, sort of like Amazon. You can't trust it that well. And then that yeah. some places they have a higher rate of 
places not fulfilling what they say than you might think. Yeah, agreed. And it, I mean, I haven't always had the best Airbnb experiences. Uh, actually, I've had pretty bad ones. So it's like, I don't know. I, I don't want that to sway my investing opinion, but uh, I know yeah. there's been some horror stories out there. So, what kind of valuation would you think in this market environment, assuming nothing changes? Thirty billion dollars, thirty-five. I don't know. This could be lower. Like, uh, uh, as far as the actual valuation, I don't know. But like a multiple, if we're looking at some a top line multiple, probably yeah. ten or less. Actually, yeah. I mean, they've they've gone through a painful period, and I guess maybe if you like the business long term, this might be you might be fortunate that they're going public now. Yeah. That, that I agree because they were going to go public in March. They were planning that in February, and then, uh, well, it, it makes sense that they didn't then. Yeah. Uh, what do you have? Okay, another S one. Um, it's kind of S one crazy right now. I think a lot of companies are trying to get out before the new year. Um, the market seems to be accepting a lot of new capital. There's actually yeah. there's probably there's a lot of money waiting. I think to be put to work. Uh, so these companies are like, all right, perfect time. You know, the market's going to be out there su- to support us, even if we're losing money. An example of that is online marketplace Wish. Uh, the CNBC headline said slow growth and steady losses. Not really a great introduction <laughs> to the company. Uh, company was founded in 2010, so about 10 years old now, and is an online discount marketplace. They want to go for people that can't afford that $119 for Prime each year. Not sure how big that market is uh, because Prime is really worth it. And also if Wish can do that and still provide free shipping where it, you know it makes sense on a cost-sensitive basis versus Prime. I wonder how low their margins are going to be. Um, a couple of numbers, 32% sales growth so far this year. Seems pretty bad to me for an e-commerce platform where you know, it's not like an apparel company or someone you know, who actually got hit. I, I know our biggest example of that is Stitch Fix where the demand for Wish products, you know, electronics, used items, stuff you can use in your home. I mean, that's gone up a ton. That's things that people can still buy. I mean, Target and Walmart's digital sales are off through the roof, right? Look what happened to Etsy this year. Yeah. And Wish saw nothing of the sort. So that's probably not a good look. And what, so Wish is just basically offering like anything and everything for cheaper. Is that that's kind of, I mean, I didn't read through the whole S1, but that's kind of what they pitched. I'm sure there's some nuances. Um, yeah, that's it. They lost $176 million so far in 2020. Operating cash flow positive, but that came mostly from accrued liabilities and stock-based compensation, which, as we know, don't take into effect the true cash flow of a business, the true free cash flow, I should say, operating cash flow's gap. Um, does this feel totally uninvestable to you? And what valuation... Um, assuming, or sorry, what revenue multiple would you peg this business at? We don't have many margin numbers here, but you know, know. assuming the margins are going to be low. Uh, it doesn't sound very investable based off your analysis of the S1. And the businesses that saw that were supposed to see a benefit from the pandemic and didn't concern me. And the, the businesses that, uh, on the flip side, you know, if they were supposed to struggle and they did and they were still resilient, that's a great sign. This they should have done better, I'd imagine, but yeah. um I don't know. It, I thought Amazon I have no was idea supposed what to be, some of these businesses will get in the public markets. I, I guess I would say the valuation multiples if it's above a sales ratio of 1, um you maybe just be like, listen, top line growth, 
e-commerce yeah. uh, platform. Ma- marketplace. Well, isn't Amazon supposed to be the online discount marketplace? And isn't Walmart also starting their own you know, competitor right now with Walmart Plus? Aren't those supposed to be the discounted places? This is the double discount? Is this supposed to be the dollar store of the internet or something like that? Imagine... <laughs> I mean, Amazon already is, like, one of the cheapest places. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, imagine thinking, like, for a business idea, like, I think we should we should just go for what Amazon's doing. Go cheaper. lose more money. Yeah. And I we mean, don't Amazon have AWS. money, but uh, come on. Like, that's one of the worst things. I don't know. It's a bad concept, and it, they have some rather tough competition yeah i mean there could be some things i'm you know i didn't read the whole s1 so if you're someone that's long uh wish you know let us know or you think there's some bullish indicators there i would love to to chat about it but this seems something to me um that i am staying away okay current state of fintwit i like i had very little um oh crypto twitter's back in full effect nice to see that um Congrats to all those Bitcoin longs that have been long since 2017. Has the utility of the product increased since then? Or here's my is here's it my it? problem with Bitcoin. There's going to be a lot of people if it succeeds. There's going to be a lot of people that are right, and they have no reason why. Yeah, they have no clue why they were right. Yep. Like, what's the point of being right on investment if you had no idea why? I mean, yeah, I mean, if I, I guess you make more money, sure, but it's like. <laughs> It's it's all it's, it's a it's, tulip mania. It yeah. feels I don't know. It pa- bears a passing resemblance. Well, two two things that I see is that one people can tra- uh, compare the Google Trends data from 2017, and it ticked it's ticked up a little bit here, um, but it's nowhere <laughs> near the Google Trends da- data uh, from that period. And they're like, look, we still got room to run just because of that. Uh, that makes no sense. And also, I think a lot of people miss. Uh, they talk about this where they go, all right, well, things are moving well for Bitcoin. There's, you know, they just look at the price. It's kind of a stock price growth thing. And I just always think, well, isn't this just a low float play where there's so much demand for the product and the supply is limited? Um, but in reality, people, you know, I guess it's a really complicated topic, but hasn't, you know, that's the whole thing, right? Isn't the utility of Bitcoin I mean, what what actually is you know happening with that? Are people paying for things in Bitcoin? That's, that's my that... biggest gripe with Bitcoin is the number one changer, like the the biggest, the only thing that really impacts it is the price and the float. The float. However, if the if the price rises, all of a sudden everyone thinks it's more viable. Yeah, and it's I don't know. There's just I've seen very little discussions around it that, that I think have true merit, I guess, the frictionless uh, or the, yeah. the removal of friction that Beth Kendig presented to us was... No, that makes sense. If, if it sense. actually happened, though, I, there's no evidence over the last five years that this has occurred, right? You know, know what I mean? Like, like, it would be great if we could do transfers of money instantly for small fees. And I know people do do that in a tiny capacity with Bitcoin, but it seems like the momentum is just not going anywhere. I don't know. It, it's like if Jerome Powell whispers the word, it moves <laughs> up twenty percent. That doesn't yeah. seem like some I'm doesn't seem to like, invest in. Yeah, you know? it doesn't seem like some I'd want to be in either. Okay, um, all right. Is that what do you have? Uh, I got two here. First one, uh, thanks, since it's Thanksgiving week, it'll be two days till Thanksgiving, um, and I guess maybe, hopefully, people aren't getting into large gatherings. But uh, there was some. I don't know what it is. High yield Larry 
made this nice anon account haven't heard of them before but they said overheard at thanksgiving the wall street edition are these things you think you could expect uh you know maybe your uncle says or someone i sold out of all my stocks in march uh what is this finance me me you know like a meme <laughs> who is this elon musk fella uh how much does a bitcoin cost or can you get your cousin jeffrey a job on wall street uh th- those are things i think a lot of people are going to be hearing either on yeah. Zoom this year or um, in, in just in general. I mean, missing the uh, – that's kind of the worst part about Thanksgiving is the random discussions. You know, there's no heated yeah. family debates. Well, people, whenever you're in finance, and I guess we technically have jobs in that now that aren't this, you know, low-level podcast. Uh, or, hey, hey, you don't know, demean us. Not low-level, you know. <laughs> Emerging market. We're an emerging yeah, fund, right? Isn't that the category? If we have an S one, the emerging fund. Uh, we we have history of losses, and we may not ever <laughs> come to profitability. Large uh, risk factors. But. Yeah. The uh, no, no. There's always the since we write, you know, for the Motley Fool a bit now. The there's always like people are questioning. So what stocks should I? Uh, what things? You know, what names? I'm like, well, I always say, well, there's a lot of uh, demand right now for like EV stocks. I, I think I might stay away. Oh, so EVs? You know, I should get into that. I know. I'm like. He's like, throw out some names for me. Nah, I can't do that. I always, That's like my biggest pet peeve is like, what's a name you like? Or what's a ticker you like? It's like, dude, that's just like. Look, we got to, yeah, we got to start a little, you know, let's buy some index funds. Maybe we go through <laughs> what a balance sheet is and we'll see if you like this. Here's a name I like, the intelligent investor. Go read it. Uh, it might help. Uh, maybe random walk down Wall Street. Yeah, so random walk is good to start. Sets your expectations low. Yeah. Um, all right, I got one more. This one. Uh, I liked this tweet because there's been a lot of people out here talking about how Buffett missed tech, and they're like, dude, he just didn't get that. There, he didn't get how software had high margins and stuff like that. He didn't, he didn't really get it. And then this one guy, he had a nice thread. Um, I'll just read the first one. He said, uh, it kind of exemplifies what I think we're at in the cycle right now for certain parts of the market. Um, he said, we've reached the point in the cycle where the brains trust of FinTwit confidently declare Buffett the most successful and experienced investor that has ever lived, that's a fact, has missed out on tech simply because he doesn't understand concepts like unit economics and operating leverage. You know, like when he invested in Coca-Cola and Walmart, he probably didn't get operating leverage, right? Or unit economics. Yeah, I just don't, there's nothing lower than like a few Anon accounts on Twitter like discussing why Buffett just doesn't understand something. I'm like, you know, he he's the GOAT. He is like what he says becomes truth in the world of investing. Yeah, and Trust he's not. Me, he's we not, don't. We don't no. have an edge up on him. Yeah, and like, also he's playing a different game um, than us. So I don't know why people <laughs> seem to think that that's true. It's like why didn't he buy Virgin Galactic? I don't know because it would be immaterial even if it did really well. Also, yeah, they're like, dude, why isn't he buying this business that has? 70% gross margins, has a history of negative 30% operating margins, has 10 competitors coming after these high gross margins, and is trading at a price-to-sales ratio of 17. But don't worry, it's had 40% top-line growth for the last three years. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, the, yeah. I know, I hate to complain, we talk about this every week, but, I mean, November has been a very speculative month. Yeah, no, agreed. I mean, at any time, I don't know why it's my first impulse whenever markets are doing well to, like, to be like, oh, it's a bubble. It is. I, I'm afraid, like, 30 years from now, I'm going to be, like, the bubble truther that everyone's no, like, no. bro, he's been wrong for 30 years. No, there's no – okay, look. You just got to look at it on a business-business 
case because there's no way a company, you know, you can't have 110% operating margins. And that's the only way some of these companies trading at these sales ratios will ever, you know, could return capital to shareholders. Um, Okay. That's enough with that. We get to go to the second half? Yeah, quick break, but uh, we have our interview with Lawrence first. Right. So uh, what was your favorite part? Uh, I like talking about the defense industry. I know it's a unique one, um, talking about the contracts with the governments, how, you know, they are relying on one customer, even though, you know, they are super reliable, um, how the M&A worked. Uh, I like that part a lot, learning about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have any specifics because we did this interview, what was it, four days ago or something like that, but it was a lot of fun, and I remember walking away from it thinking – it was, it was stimulating. Yeah, yeah. Got to look at it. look at some of the yeah. Look at some of the ten Ks in these industries. Um, you don't need to have all your eggs in the software basket. That's right. for sure. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is red color, red color. All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Today we are welcomed by Lawrence Hamtill. He's an investment advisor at Fortune Financial in Overland Park, Kansas. Am I getting all that right? That's correct, yep. Okay, so I thought a good way to start this interview would just be your background. How did you get started in the world of investing? So my interest in investing began in high school. Um, I'm 38, so this would have been probably 20, 21 years ago. I had a teacher in high school who was an economics guy, and and he had us do uh, a lot of investment projects and teach us about the economy and so forth. And I remember I did a investment project on Boeing in terms of like forecasts and things like that. And it piqued my interest. I never thought it would lead to a career, but a few years later, I ended up working for a small uh, investment planning firm and uh, just kind of went from there. So I've evolved definitely over the past couple of decades, but I would say it started in high school, just doing some routine digging and seeing how companies work, what separates companies in different industries and and, uh, you know, kind of seeing the evolution of the uh, market and the economy over the past uh, 20 or so years. And from a lot of your content, uh, it, it seems that you're into less sexy industries. They're not as appealing to most investors. What was sort of your draw towards that? Um, were you, did you feel like it was more inefficient or something? Well, uh, I think oftentimes you're influenced by the people that you read a lot of and growing up uh, in the early stages of my career around 2002 2003 I read a lot of David Dreamin uh, Ken Fisher some of these guys and and uh, Dreamin in particular he's a famous contrarian and he wrote a lot about uh, especially and keep in mind this is coming out of the dot-com boom and bust. And so a lot of these industries were out of favor, things like railroads, tobacco, and so forth. They were definitely overlooked. Uh, Defense was another one um, that was overlooked in the 90s after the Cold War. And these guys are saying, you know, these industries still have a lot of earning potential. They have tremendous competitive advantages. And, you know, these other sexy stocks, they're too popular, they're too expensive. And of course, 
uh, you know, they were proved right over, over the subsequent years. So I would say I, I, probably David Dreamin is my biggest influence as far as uh, looking at uh, sort of unloved industries, which is, and it, it's kind of funny that they're unloved because a lot of these have been around for decades and they've proven their worth over long periods of time. But uh, I guess in some ways, maybe they, they don't grow fast enough or, or they just don't have the appeal to, to attract a lot of uh, capital at times. Yeah, and then one thing you write about a lot is durable moats. Um, we're going to have a couple questions on that. Uh, what is the difference between what you would call a durable moat and then a standard competitive advantage? Because I know that word gets thrown out a lot, um, but a lot, you know, maybe 80, 90% of what people call competitive advantages may not actually be true ones. Um, so what's the difference between a durable one and then one that can be eroded over time? Well, I, I think of, I focus a lot of my thinking, uh, building portfolios for retirees and, and uh, they don't have a lot of um, uh, risk tolerance, so to speak. And so we're looking at portfolios that we can build that we know that the components will, will provide them with uh, uh, potential upside over long periods of time. And so I look at things in particular, consumer staples and, and things that have been around for a while and have proven their durability. And I think, what, is, what are some things that those companies exhibit that, that don't exist maybe in some other industries? And, um, you know, I've, I've mentioned uh, as examples, uh, industries with what I think are durable modes, uh, tobacco, railroads, airports, uh, specialty chemicals, uh, trash collection. These are things that uh, for various reasons are going to be with us for, you know, decades ahead. Uh, if you think of airports and how people travel, uh, there's not much substitution possibility there. Uh, you've got to get from A to B and you've got to use the facilities there to, when you travel. So I, I think what are these companies and industries that are least susceptible to disruption? And to me, if you think about it and you think what can possibly go wrong, what can disrupt this business over the next 10 or 20 years, and it, you start to think, okay, there are actually probably pretty few industries that have durable moats that will be doing the same thing 10, 20 years from now that they're doing now. Right. And how do you balance sort of uh, the durability, so how long they can stay around for versus their ability to also grow because i mean i'm sure there's businesses that can stick around but not really grow in that time uh do you balance the growth aspect as well yeah i mean you you have to um you, you can't just maintain your uh existing share and and uh consumer base and and really expect to to thrive um you know, railroads are kind of an interesting example. I, I posted to my Twitter feed uh, excerpts from an interview with uh, the gentleman who was running a BNSF for Warren Buffett. And he talks about, well, the nobody's building a new railroad, but there is the potential for competition from autonomous battery powered trucks that could platoon and, and take share away from railroads. And you have all of these things that even five or 10 years ago seemed unimaginable, but they're potential threats. And so incumbents can't just rely on being insulated against uh, competition from new technologies. They have to be thinking, how can we get more from, from less in terms of stringing more rail cars together? 
or uh, using these new technologies to our own advantage and not just sitting idly by, you know? So it, it's important for companies just to, not to sit on their laurels, but to continue to think ahead and, and um, grow as much as possible within their markets, but also think down the line and how can they continue to capture the, the change and dynamics of the economy and so forth. Right. And I guess one other question on that is, do you weigh things like the way they return capital to shareholders, like dividends versus buybacks versus reinvesting in the business versus, you know, reinvesting in new industries to try to keep out any new competition? You certainly want to uh, see uh, reasonable capital management on the part of the uh, uh, companies and, and, their, and how they go about that. I mean, capital allocation, I should say. Um, acquisitions are good. A lot of them are value destroying. Some of them are necessary. Uh, it really depends on the industry, though. Uh, and things like tobacco, they, they tend to return most of it via dividends, but that's just because they generate a lot of cash and, and have very little competition and they can't do advertising. So there's really not a lot of reason for them to reinvest back in the business, although there's a big exception of Philip Morris that spent billions of dollars um, sort of disrupting themselves with the heat not burn tobacco. Uh, you look at uh, a lot of the railroads that have been buying back shares with their increase in free cash flow and so forth and, and being selective there. But, um, you know, on the other hand, they also have to spend money on, on keeping their uh, infrastructure, right? So, you know, you, you don't want them to be uh, too short-sighted in terms of paying their investors here and now when they do have to spend a lot of money just keeping their competitive advantage and their infrastructure in place. Right. And then one thing you talk about is that regulation can kind of help keep out competition. It raises costs. You know, there's regulatory hurdles, as people call it. Uh, do you think, though, on the flip side, does high regulation ever cap potential upside? Is that anything you worry about? I think it really kind of depends on the industry again. Um, yeah. You know, you, you look at the specialty chemical space and uh, uh with let's say um, sort of uh, explosive chemicals or, or dangerous substances and regulation definitely keeps out some of the competition in those spaces, but it also is a, a tax on doing business. And, and so there is a balance there between kind of protecting your market share, but, but also um, keeping your, keeping your profits down, so to speak. So yeah, it really does vary. And of course, you know, even in the railroad space and so forth, you got to have a good relationship with, with your overseers and make sure that you're keeping them happy. Uh, the last thing you want, of course, is for the regulators to be unhappy and, and clamp down on you. So yeah, it's a double-edged sword for sure. They can be your best friend and your, your worst enemy, so to speak. And uh, we're, we're going to dive into two specific industries, but the first one is going to be defense. Um, and what besides like the capital investment uh, makes the defense sector so hard to disrupt? Because I mean, we rarely see big startups or, or, or startups come up in the defense area. Sure. Well, it's kind of a, an interesting thing. So if you look at some of the industries that have uh, really been sort of turned upside down by competition over the past few decades, you could look at steel, for example, and 
that was something that that uh, eventually got outsourced to foreign competitors, uh, Korea, China, and so forth. If you look at the defense industry for national security reasons, there's no chance that the government's going to invite yeah. the Chinese or the Koreans to you know do anything and build warplanes for for them in that respect. Then you've got security clearances for the workers and contracts that are not even public because of, of uh, national security concerns. And uh, if you wanted to start a new defense firm, it, the intangible assets that you don't have are so hard to acquire uh, in terms of these things, the security clearances. And it's not just for the guys who are designing, but even the people who are, um, you know, nuts and bolts type stuff, doing the welding, whatever, you have to have whole workforces that are cleared. Those things, they all add up to a tremendous advantage for the in incumbent firms. And um, the defense spending uh, of the federal government has been kind of like a, a socialism in the sense that they have been distributing profits, trying to keep all of these companies around because they know they need that infrastructure in place. And, and having that um, sort of relationship with the uh, the Pentagon and so forth. It's just very hard to disrupt the, those established relationships. And we've seen over the past, I think it's probably around 30 years now, uh, a ton of consolidation into, I believe, five big, uh, you know, defense companies. Does the M&A and the consolidation, does that matter at all to success? Or is that just kind of a correlation for how well the industry is done? Well, I think it's a product of a few things. Uh, for the for the most part, a lot of the the recent consolidation came after the end of the Cold War, when there was not as much demand on the part of the federal government to keep building new weapon systems, and so you saw McDonnell Douglas go away and Grumman merge with Northrop. I should say McDonnell Douglas didn't go away. I believe they merged with Boeing. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of consolidation and now it's just a handful of, of companies and it, it certainly benefited them in the sense that they <clears throat> now control pretty much everything with sort of an oligopoly uh, and they know that they're going to be the first ones to get called for a new contract. But, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it really matters for their, their pricing power and their... Um, ability to you know command the space the growth is really going to be dictated by the defense budgets and how much congress is willing to spend you know uh, what their plans are going forward so it's it's a slightly different dynamic there okay and then i guess you just mentioned the you know the plans for uh the government contracts uh is the reliance on these contracts a concern at all or is it on a net basis, is it a positive because, you know, they have those locked in relationships with, with the one customer? Well, I, I can see where you might, people might think that it would be sort of a downside to have one big customer. You know, in any other business, you, you probably wouldn't want to have so much of your eggs in one basket. But I spoke with a gentleman who is a subcontractor in the defense industry, and he told me something that I never forgot, which is that the government always pays their bills on time. Right. And I thought about that, and it's, it's true. I mean, they, have, they can print money, they can issue debt, uh, and it's something that's always going to be prioritized because of the, what's at stake there. 
And, and so I think in this case, it really is, is um, more positive than negative to have the federal government as your primary customer. If you're, if the federal government is your primary customer, is there sort of a limit on your ability to raise prices as a producer? Um, yeah, to some extent. I mean, you, you never want to um, be at the uh, receiving end of a, like a congressional inquiry for you know, did you raise costs uh, on purpose or were you charging $2,000 for a hammer? Those sorts of things. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure how, how big of a, a problem that really is because I think uh, in, in some cases, there's such an established relationship there between the, the military commanders and the executives that um, I think they probably know pretty well what's a fair price, uh, what value they're getting, what they're asking from the companies. And, and also the government knows the sacrifices the companies are making in terms of being secret and committing to one customer and so forth. So if you read uh, Ben Rich's book, uh, Skunk Works, that goes into great detail about all of these development programs over time with the uh, Stealth Fighter and the SR-71 and really does a good job of talking about these managerial decisions and the economics of the business. And um, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a fascinating dynamic that you really don't see in a lot of other industries there. Right. And then one more question about uh, defense, and then we'll get on to waste management. Uh, I think some people get bogged down in that they only have one customer, the U.S. government. Do they work with, you know, um, just, you know, U.S. allies like Europe, Israel and things like that? Or are they limited to just the United States? Well, yeah, I mean, they're eventually once they get cleared, they're going to... Uh, they can sell to other countries, you know, like uh, I think a lot of European countries are using the F-35, for example, I believe Australia as well, uh, once they go through the, the Pentagon review process. But those countries spend so little, relatively speaking, on their defense budgets that I, I wouldn't say they're incidental, but they're nothing compared to what the U.S. government spends uh, relative to its its budget. So, yeah, I, I guess we're technically not being correct if we say that the U.S. government is the main uh, customer, but certainly they're the driving force behind the innovation. And then these smaller countries will sign on and say, well, we don't have the capacity to design those ourselves. We'll put in an order for a few planes or, or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, I mean – it just depends on the, um, you know, clearance and so forth. There's they're probably not going to be any countries buying a B-2 bomber, but they'll probably buy a few F-35s because the current planes that they have are 20 and 30-year-old designs and are probably now obsolete. Does political party, does the political party that's in charge end up impacting these businesses at all just because of the, the budgets that are set? Historically, no. Um, it seems like every four years, the multiples on these firms uh, compress a little bit because of political fears, especially when uh, it's a Democrat who's, who's taking, taking the lead in the polls. That's just a perception, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's a reality when you look historically, especially in the aerospace uh, segment a lot of these companies they've proven that they can 
they can do well no matter who's in the White House. And, and I think because so many communities depend on defense spending and uh, the national security questions and so forth, it, it always ends up getting prioritized. No politician really wants to go up for election or re-election and be perceived as soft on national security. Uh, you can debate whether or not that's that's a, a worthwhile thing uh, in this environment, but that's just how it has worked in the past, and I see no reason why it should change. Okay, let's move to the waste management industry, and that's not just, you know, most people probably think of the waste management company, but there's more beyond that. There's landfills, garbage, uh, I'm sorry, incinerators, recycling, yeah, recycling, yeah. So, what what do you find so appealing about the landfill business specifically? Well, the the waste management industry as a whole, it, it's it's again, you'll, what you've noticed about these industries that we've talked about is they tend to be dominated by a few large players, and that's because the cost of doing business has has uh, sort of weeded out a lot of the smaller players. And when you look at trash collection and so forth and the landfills, environmental concerns, uh, it, it really lends itself to insulating these incumbent players against new competition as they continue to, to take share and, and so forth. The, the landfills are in particular interesting. You need to have a lot of clearance and, and licenses and so forth and, and meet environmental concerns to operate them. Uh, no small company really has access to that sort of thing. Uh, so it's, it's not the, the most profitable industry in terms of margins and so forth, but it's something that you're really going to have dominated by a few big players that can afford to uh, bear these regulatory burdens and so forth. Um, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, the, I was going to say it's a, uh... It's, it's a business that seems like startups, uh, you know, I mean, Silicon Valley, Boston, Seattle, Europe, they're not like, well, as you know, what we want to get into is garbage. Like, that's not something that's going on, right? Yeah, right. I think because there's a tremendous amount of infrastructure that, that needs to be in place to, to operate these things. Um, you have to have the expertise of, of dealing with the regulators. Uh, there's a lot of upfront costs and so forth. What, what you see uh, in, the, in the business and the industry is that a lot of the, the bigger players simply roll up the smaller ones uh, and, and just kind of grow by acquisition. And they take on these routes and so forth with the, the contracts with the cor corporations, municipalities and, and so forth. I just don't think that there's really much um, uh, much desire on the part of these startups to try to take that on. You know, it's, it, it's like I said, it's, it's a good industry in terms of the economics for these reasons. It's not super profitable. I mean, you're not attacking 40% profit margins. Um, then you'd have all of the upfront costs. I mean, you, you would have so many sunk costs, I think, just trying to, to get it. It just wouldn't be worth your while. Right. Okay. And then I think people get confused on what actually these companies, you know, who their partners are. I mean, who are the customers they're trying to get these contracts for? And then what is a typical contract duration? Is it all with, you know, local towns and things like that? 
So you have a variety of contracts with the uh, municipalities, which I believe are generally like three to seven years or so. Then you have the um, companies, I believe that are around three years. Don't quote me on that. I'm just kind of going off of memory there, but yeah. they tend to be several years in, in duration. Municipalities are a little bit longer. Uh, I believe waste management posts this on their website, uh, which is out there for people to look. Uh, I think because of those contracts, they have very low turnover. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, sort of switching costs involved. So it's, I, I would think that it's very um, rare for these contracts not to get renewed or to be, uh, you know, displaced by a competitor, so to speak. So it's, it's a little different. Um, from uh, region to region. I'm sure different states have different regulations for each. You know, California probably has much stricter regulations than, you know, somewhere in the middle of the country. But generally, you know, you're looking at contracts of several years and, and so forth. And do the, do the costs get passed through to the individual, like, households for a region? And, uh, is that something that happens? <laughs> yeah. So... I mean, that's kind of an interesting question because what you're seeing now with people working from home and not, not at their offices is that the, uh, the collection volume, as I understand it, has really picked up in neighborhoods because people are staying home longer. They're generating more trash at home. So a lot of these companies are seeking to raise costs because you know, those contracts were, were based on an assumption that each week you might have one bin full of trash. Well, now it's two. So they've got to figure out how to account for that. Mm. So it's, it's a little um, something that I, I think it's, those trends, of course, are, I don't necessarily believe that people are going to be working from home and generating that much trash for the duration of the contract. But yes, they are looking to rate, pass that cost on to the end consumer for sure because they've got to keep those those routes profitable. Uh, or go ahead, Ryan. I was, uh, I'm going to hit on the next question here, but for the company side, how do they how do they grow customers? Do they have to like lobby to these local governments to be like, hey, can we get this area? I mean, is it like this? long sales process or is it just like hey we collect trash better than that company can we do it you know i'm i'm not uh 100 sure about that what i do know though is that i think the the biggest trend has just been acquiring the smaller players and then rolling up routes that way okay. so if you had a like a overland park kansas for example and you had kind of a local company that was pretty much doing the, the trash collection. And so a company like Waste Management or Republic Services or whoever comes along and they'll just buy that up and then paint Waste Management on the trucks and take over the operations. I, I think that's been the proven way that they've, they've grown generally is, is just by rolling up the smaller players and, and taking share that way. There are some obvious antitrust concerns there eventually because, you know, they they don't like to have so much power in just a few players, but they find creative ways to divest some assets and, and things like that to appease the regulators. Do you have any more? No, I was just going to say, I'm hearing about these, uh, this unit economics, low churn, 
you know, recurring. Uh, if you, if this was a software business, someone might slap a 20 times sales multiple on this thing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I don't know. It's, it's funny because uh, ESG is a big thing now. Uh-huh. And I don't know if uh, you, you could see it in uh, defense companies, tobacco and things like that, that the multiples are definitely down, even though the businesses seem to be doing okay. Um, I don't know where trash collection falls in that. I mean, they have the recycling biz, but that's not anywhere near where the trash collection business is. I would be curious to know uh, how, uh, and maybe I'll look that up when we're done, how ESG rates trash collection, because you're certainly trying to help the environment keep the communities clean. But on the other hand, landfills are not popular and, and uh, things like that. So, you know, to your question, software kind of gets away with that because nobody perceives any, uh, there's no negative perception, so to speak. Right. But right. trash collection. Oh, you're like, Oh, that's, that's terrible. You're, yeah. you know, you're just uh, putting junk in the ground. And there might be some like ESG based funds, like ETFs and stuff like that, that uh, create a lot of flows into those companies as well. So it can be impactful on the stock price. I think so. Definitely in the short to, to near term. I mean, you have pressure to divest and, and uh, you know, institutions that are not, uh, they're, they're definitely moving more towards ESG compliance and, and things like that. So, you know, they probably will be dumping their shares if, if they're not allowed to hold them. There are mandates now for a lot of these big institutions I think in the long run, it kind of evens out. There has to be a buyer for every seller, right? But, right. you know, as these these uh, concerns kind of take hold and seize the imagination, I, I think it will lead to, um, you know, some multiple compression in some of these out-of-favor industries. Okay, uh, we're going to hit our wrap-up questions then. Uh, first one, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? I would say... And I've written about this before on my blog, uh, which is out there for people to, uh, to check out if they want. Uh, I'm not sure that I disagree with it, but I'll be kind of the devil's advocate. And I'm not entirely convinced that American investors have to have a global portfolio. I've run the numbers for a lot of decades. There's, there hasn't been a lot of value add in in terms of absolute returns or even risk adjusted returns, uh, investing in say a a generic global portfolio versus say like the S&P 500. Now it looks like hindsight bias, I understand that. Uh, Even when you look at the decade from 2000 to 2009 or so when, when foreign stocks outperformed, you could argue a lot of that was currency related and index composition related and things like that. Um, and, and I think uh, Jack Bogle, the, the uh, godfather of index investing would probably agree with me. You know, the U.S. market is so deep, so diverse. You have so many publicly traded companies across the spectrum. I mean, in most countries, you have very narrow markets, very static industries. Here, we're talking about being able to invest directly in waste collection and defense and things like that, which is uh, probably difficult in other markets where you're just going to be stuck with a handful of opportunities that are investable. So I would say that I, 
I lean more towards the skeptic side in terms of uh, the traditional or the, the conventional wisdom of, of having to invest abroad to have a fully diversified portfolio. I think, I think that's an oversimplification and the data at this point really don't seem to support it too much in my view. Right, that's interesting. And then you could also, um, I think you, you may have mentioned it, but the fact that U.S. companies actually, you know, they have tons of business internationally. I know everyone's investing, well, not everyone, every big tech company is investing in India. Currently, you might not have exposure to China, but at least the rest of the world, I mean, you got a lot of exposure there through just those U.S. companies, correct? That's correct. And you, you see, for example, in Europe, the headline index, MSCI Europe or, or mm-hmm. FTSE, what have you, um, those same firms are the same ones that were pretty much dominant in it for you know the previous decades, whereas in the U.S. you have this dynamic of um, sort of creative destruction that the top companies are always churning every few years. And uh, in Europe's case, you have a in Germany, I think it's it's only the the market cap uh, of the equity market to GDP is only about 0.6%, but a lot of that's because they have a much bigger private market. A lot of these small and middle firms are closely held. They probably want to stay private because their family operated, things like that. So you're left with a lot of the banks and and these old institutions that they don't change very much. Like I said, they're static industries and uh, they're not... Germany is not the best example because they do have a lot of, uh, you know, export driven companies, but in Spain, Portugal, other countries, that's mostly these domestic oriented banks, utilities, telecoms, things like that. They're, they're anything but global for the most part. Okay. We're going to wrap up with the last question here. Uh, what is one piece of advice you would give for anyone starting a career in investing? Make connections. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of the, a lot of it is, is not what you know, but whom you know. And I think that it's definitely something that uh, if you knock on enough doors, you have coffee with enough people, um, you know, you, you, you get your name out there, you meet people in different, it depends on what you, what type of career you want to have. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to work in finance. You could work with individuals like I do. You can work for an institution, a bank, whatever. But having a, and with social media and things like that, it's, it's very easy to establish connections, to meet people from a um, kind of the big picture of, of the industry and start to drill down on really what interests you. But I would say that a lot of the success that I've enjoyed, uh, if there's been any success at all, has really just been talking with a lot of people, keeping an open mind. And then on the other hand, when people approach me, um, being respectful of of those people and, and answering their questions, and that usually comes back to help you later on down the line. So you'll never regret having too many contacts or, or colleagues or friends or whatever in the industry that you're interested in. It's, it's maybe not the most academic advice, but it's definitely good in terms of uh, helping you grow and, and interact with people and build those relationships. So you're saying, yeah, you got to get on Twitter if you're in the, if you're trying to get into investing or finance, right? 
Well, it's definitely uh, a tool that I was skeptic, uh, skeptical of because you see most of the celebrity tweets, but you also realize that in some ways it's like a real-time message board or forum for people with similar interests and the ability to kind of group those interests and, and share ideas, um, especially as it relates to investing and, and stock uh, particular ideas. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it's, it's paid off in terms of the people that I've met and the research and it's, you think of yourself as, as kind of an island initially and when you open up to, to Twitter or all of these other uh, communities, you know, suddenly you're open up to all these other ideas. That's not to say that there isn't a lot of junk out there, but, you know, if you can filter it out and find what you're looking for, then the potential is, is really there. Yeah, the mute button, you got to be a little heavy-handed with that, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, it's all about how you curate it and, and, and so forth. But I've learned a tremendous amount from people that I've uh, interacted with. And there's no way that any one person can learn all there is about uh, different industries. So sometimes, like I said, it's – I forget who said it, but – wisdom is not necessarily storing all the knowledge it's knowing where to find it so knowing who knows what about which company or which industry you can always hit questions there and and it helps from a uh, you know a, a big picture point of view okay well that's all the questions we have thank you for joining us what's your uh what's your blog called so any listeners can find you it. you can find my uh my blog at fortunefinancialadvisors.com there's a there's a link to the blog there i haven't been writing as much been trying to do more deeper dives but there there have been a few over the past couple of months and you can find me on uh twitter at l hamptill l h a m as in mary t as in tom i l Okay. All right. Yeah. And I, I, you had some good stuff on there about barbell investing. Um, so maybe we'll have to get you back on and talk about that. Cause that was really interesting. I can, uh, I can talk your ear off on that for sure. That's right. perfect. Thank you, Lawrence. All right. Thanks guys. Have a good evening. Okay. Welcome back in. Thanks again to Lawrence Hamtill for joining us. Next we have hot water. Uh, I have two. I got two as well. Go ahead. Though. I'm going to go first. I'm sorry if I took yours. I know I might've, but Robin hood, is in hot ah, water once well, again. You saw my tweet then. I know. Uh, there was a few people that There's, tweeted Yeah, it was a popular one, yeah. Uh, Vlad Tenev, the co-CEO of Robinhood, said in an interview with Jim Cramer that Robinhood users acted as a stabilizing force during the volatility and crash in March. I um, said, yeah, I said hot water, Jay Powell. Okay, listen. It's viciously buying the dip is not a stabilizing force <laughs> just because they bought when other people sold doesn't mean that the data actually supports that Robinhood traders with 10 bucks from their parents is like propping up the economy yes are you uh, this, no look dude it, i i've lost so much respect for vlad Tenev and the other guy yeah, you know, they're just, just they're just hype, they're just hyping up their business. It's just all user growth. It's all stuff like that. They're trying to make these Robinhood investors seem sophisticated, which I think is a bad thing to tell them that they are. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're they're trying to assume. I mean, he's like, no, a, look, look at Royal Caribbean. Look how many users bought when it fell. It's yeah. like that. They could still lose out on this, and you're <laughs> yes. you're just like gassing them up. I mean, 
Yeah, the uh, no, it definitely wasn't the Fed uh, backstopping on those bond yields when yields skyrocketed like 11% when there was a liquidity crisis looming in March. It wasn't that when they said, no, all bonds are good. We're going to fulfill this. We're going to start buying bond ETFs, although they never really did. They're going to start buying high-yielding debt. It wasn't that. No, no, no. It was the Robinhood traders, the, the 100,000 that ended up buying airline stocks and the GJETS, the Jets ETF. <laughs> or right? Hertz. Or Hertz. Yeah, it was definitely them. I mean, just, I don't know. All I want them to do is release one figure, the the median amount of uh, of cash held in an account or or assets in an or account. Or how about just yeah? Or I guarantee it is less than a thousand dollars. Yeah, the or just they release the user numbers, which have been skyrocketing. But along with that, let's get a total AUM because I don't think it's sniffing. Uh, it, I, it's probably sniffing ten billion dollars, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, probably. You know how much Schwab has? You know how much Vanguard has? And, uh, sorry, excuse me, BlackRock. They have over $5 trillion, and they're valued at possibly, like, only five to eight times as much Listen, as what Robinhood's valued at. It's, it is super hypocritical. And the fact is, like, the reason he's cheering these people on, like, from the sideline is because he benefits every time you trade. Yeah. Like, he's not doing it because he thinks your behavior is actually going to help you. Yes. Like, he's like, keep it up, guys. Like, we're keep doing it up, great. Man. Order flow. Love it, love it, love it. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, second one for me, the old economy is in hot water. No, don't say it. You might have steal, stolen mine, too. A business trying to make money off of a mansions full of TikTok <sighs> influencers has officially gone public through a former Chinese healthcare company. Um, sorry. Yeah, I, I stole s- mine again, but it's, this will be fun to talk about. Okay. So, basically, these houses – operate as a management company and take the clubhouse media group or something like that right yeah so if you think about it like these influencers these tiktok influencers make money on sponsors and if you give them a place to live almost like an incubator you're taking a cut of their revenue for rent essentially yeah and so anyway the tongji healthcare company uh, which was incorporated in Las Vegas, was incorporated by a Chinese hospital, had oh. no assets in 2019. <laughs> so they bought this company. It's like a reverse merger. It's basically a SPAC where this uh, this new clubhouse, house, clubhouse, clubhouse company, media group yeah, uh, becomes public. And I couldn't think of a business I care about less. I mean <laughs> – Dude, it's also – it's a penny stock right away. I mean whatever on that. Uh, guess what? One of the houses is called. Um, you're gonna, you might like actually cringe so much. You you'll you might like shrivel up and die. They're called. It's called Clubhouse for the Boys. That I mean, I actually like I whatever. Oh I know no, it's fine. They're, these people are probably making money, but I'm gonna give you. There was a nice tweet from Ian Borthwick that I think got that on everyone's radar. Uh, let's look at the January through July balance sheet here. Actually, sorry, income statement. Revenue, $95,000. That's... Cost of sales, $90,000. Gross profit, $5,000, right? $95,000 minus $90,000. Can you guess what the expenses were? How much? Yeah. Oh, God. I don't know, five hundred grand. $974,000. So operating is just... loss is negative $969,000. But, they, I mean, is that just the cost of the house? I don't know. Expenses were look. Revenue was nine hundred fifty thousand dollars, or sorry, ninety five thousand dollars. Expenses 95, were expenses were more than ten times that. Uh, this is what he said. 
This is, it's from a tweet. Could be wrong, but that's a terrible business, right? Yeah, it just uh, God, I I can't imagine that these. How are these guys being backed and put into houses for generating five thousand dollars in income? Are you sure it wasn't five million? Let me look at. Uh, let's look at what they're trading at. No, I, I, it's it's definitely that low. He uh, no one. I mean, look, the tweet was. I think the tweet was right. Okay. Well, anyway, um, I mean, I try, I'll try to find. Imagine the waking up every day in that house, being like, "All right, what TikTok can we do to like get more money out of our sponsors?" Yeah, like, that's I what mean, their life consists of. I don't know. I hate to degrade their, you know, because I love my FinTalk, but yeah. Oh, the company, the healthcare company. Guess what its market cap is right now? A uh, million dollars. Four hundred twelve million dollars. It's trading. It's there's up. no way it was ninety five thousand in revenue though. <laughs> it could be. It had to be Virgin Galactic. Dude, I don't think it's ninety-five million on one house right now. It's trading at literally a gazillion times gross profit. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It, I mean, it's up a hundred percent today. Okay. I think th- this might be the, this might be the <laughs> example think, of. I'll th- bet you they are. I'll bet you the TikTok influencers are like advertising this on TikTok. Like, go yeah. buy this. Yeah, this. I mean, this could be. And Vlad Tenev is like, come, come, come trade on, it right Robin here. Hood, and Robin. No, this could be that uh, something that goes in the history books for this mini, you know, spack bubble that we're in right now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, buy, sell, hold. Uh, the theme this week is S ones from this week. So, Airbnb, Roblox, and Affirm. Airbnb, Roblox, Affirm. I didn't look at Affirm, so I'm gonna Neither pass. Hold on that. Roblox, I'm buying. Airbnb, I'm selling. I guess I'll just sell. You got to hold Airbnb. Right? I'll hold Airbnb. You got to sell the one you don't know. Yeah, sell. So I don't know. I would hold. Yeah. yeah, I'd say buy Roblox, hold Airbnb, and sell a firm. I just haven't looked at a firm. Might be a good business. I think the, it's tied to Peloton, right? Yeah, I think it is true. Yeah, I saw Ryan Reeves uh, have a nice tweet about how a firm is tied to a lot of Peloton revenue. Or sorry, a firm's revenue is tied to Peloton's. Um, but Roblox, I've been reading through the S1. Probably do a pitch here. I think we're going to go over and deep dive on Thursday for them with yeah, Ian. I think so. Um, I think it's got a great business model, strong moat. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, lots of lots of like there. Anecdotal evidence. Um, I'll go first. I don't know how I waited so long to watch Breaking Bad, but damn, that is a really good show. What uh, season are you on now? Currently binging season two, episode six. That's yeah, heating up. I know. I just looked. I got like 35 hours ahead of me of great content. So looking forward to it. Um, yeah. Secondly, I've been listening to all the Berkshire shareholder meetings since 1994 in podcast form, and they're like four hours each podcast. But on Apple Podcasts, right? Not yeah, it's on, on Apple Podcasts. I've only gotten to 1997, but they are really, really good. And there's like weird audio blips where you can't hear people sometimes, but the nuggets that you get from Charlie and Warren are, I mean, those two, they're like the greatest team of all time. Yeah, it's kind of like if uh, it's kind of like if, gosh, I'm trying to do a sports analogy. It's like if you had, I don't know, like Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson on the same team. That's not the best example, or maybe like it's just Charlie was ruthless and he was very. Uh, he is blunt. Yeah, I mean, he was very honest, uh, but it makes for great content. He'd be great on a podcast. <laughs> Munger, young Munger would be dominating the fintoid podcast universe right now oh yeah and i think maybe the i mean right now the 98 99 2000 shareholder le- meetings might be a fantastic oh, to listen to for the current environment i mean i got like 
hundreds of hours ahead of me, so it's probably going to take me years to listen to this whole thing, but it's really good. I recommend, if anyone has the time, go listen to it. That would easily replace... I would have... I would have bought that for probably a hundred dollars. They make it for free because they're already, uh, you know, they're yeah. doing quite well. They don't need that influx yeah. of cash. I would, I would replace that for my degree. Yeah, it's, it's definitely. <laughs> I don't want to say don't listen to it in class, but <laughs> I mean, it's usually yeah, I'd usually be better at degree. All right, uh, what do you have? Okay, I guess I'll start with this one, just a quick one. Um, is Tesla back to being? <laughs> I know we uh, we haven't brought it up for a while, so I thought a little funny thing here is, is you know, is it back to being um, like the the stock that goes up ten percent every day for no reason? It's unshortable. That's I'm oh, it is. It, that. it is because yeah. here's I okay. Another tidbit from the uh, Berkshire meetings that I found was Warren said identifying frauds. I'm not commenting necessarily on Tesla, but. Identifying frauds and identifying overvalued businesses is easy. Yeah, shorting them is not. Yeah, and they've tried it. We've we've even tried. I've learned that. I've before. learned that the hard way. You can be right in the long term, but you're gonna you can still lose all your money. Yeah. Okay. And then the reason I brought that up is this is a Morgan Stanley, so one of the most reputable investment banks out there. You know, hundred years old, probably pay people high six figures to do stuff like this, analyst notes, things like that. This is their note. Morgan Stanley, go all in on Tesla. Quote, it's expensive on what we know, but cheap on what we don't. <laughs> these are the so people these are the people that are supposed to be like the experts. Are you kidding me? So is every company. I mean if it becomes the biggest company, like if it becomes an AWS, if they just throw one of those on their business, they're going to be in good. Yeah, shape. they're going to. It's. I I don't know. We don't know what it could be. So add yeah. another billion to that. I don't know what account. that Clubhouse Media Group could be. So I can buy it at any price. Price doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, all right. Last one. We'll hit it on a high note here. This seemed like a good idea. You may have seen this. Uh, I think this could be a great way to get things going in 2021. You pay everyone fifteen hundred dollars to get the vaccine. Works two folds. One, everyone gets the vaccine. Two, it is a stimulus check. And, you know, that's going to help save lives. Got to help people financially. Going to get more people to get the vaccine. And the $400 billion will pay for itself because of the economic boost. Yeah. My, I talked with this about, uh, with my family, dad. family chat. Yeah. Uh, sounds good in theory, but anyone with like underlying conditions that can't get the vaccine for whatever reason are, they're what? They don't get. They don't get their pay. Uh, ooh, I mean that is a loophole. No plan's yeah. perfect, but I think this one. I mean, if they're anti-vaxxers by choice, yeah, maybe they don't deserve their pay. But if they're anti-vaxxers by default or by medical condition, uh, you know, maybe it doesn't work. Okay, well, you know, it's like an, it's like anything. You can do an exception. You can apply yes. for if if you you know you still get the fifteen hundred. If you can't get the vaccine, here's the other thing: anti-vaxxers don't. I don't understand the big gripe about them. If you get the vaccine and they don't, who cares? Like, well, just... no, 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 that's not true because uh, we've seen that with measles. There's actually a measles outbreak in Portland, or it could have been smallpox, one of those diseases that were eradicated a long time ago because if enough don't get the vaccine, now I'm saying this as someone that doesn't know much. I mean, it's okay, people, but whatever. <laughs> the uh, 
look the like if enough people don't get it there's a there's a chance of that even kids that are immunized to get like these things it's all about getting that you know herd immunity type deal uh, so it does matter huh interesting yeah i guess you know learn something new every day uh is that gonna do it that yeah that's all man all right uh once again code ccm join the herd and uh <laughs> yes we are not financial advisors anything we say or discuss here on chit chat money is not formal advice or recommendation uh, i think you guys know where to reach us by this point but email is chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com find us on twitter uh thank you guys for listening we'll see you next week